Welcome to episode 18 of the Next Gen Cast, and thanks so much for taking the time to listen to us. The podcast has been going for over a year now already, and we've had 6,000 downloads. Thanks so much to everyone who's taken the time to listen, to share, to subscribe, to feedback about the podcast. We really appreciate it. My guest this week for our one-year birthday of the podcast is Sir John Timpson, chairman and owner of Timpson's, the high street shop where we, our parents, maybe our grandparents, have probably gone to for many, many years having shoes repaired, keys cut. In my case, I often get holes punched in things like belts and watch straps because they're always too big. Now, in some ways, the name Timpson conjures up an image of quite a traditional shop that's been around for decades, but the management at Timpson is anything but traditional, and they do much more than cutting keys. They also have a culture of cutting out policy and processes so people can just do the job to the best of their ability. They embody some of the most progressive thinking in the business world and I really think that we as the NHS can learn a lot from them. I think that ethos is even more remarkable when you learn that around 12% of their employees are ex-convicts recruited from prisons. Now, if looking after more than 2,000 Timpson shops wasn't enough, Sir John Timpson also fostered over 90 children with his late wife Alex. And he used what he learned about attachment in doing that to influence the way that he's looked after his staff for decades. I heard Sir John Timpson some time ago on Desert Island Discs and I I just had a, a dream one day to actually speak to him in person. So this conversation was a real privilege for me and I really hope that you enjoy it as much as I did. So here's Sir John Timpson. So, Sir John Timpson, welcome to the Next Gen Cast. And it really is such a privilege to speak to you today. Thank you so much for doing it's this. It's my pleasure. Thank you. So, I first learned about the culture that you cultivated at Timpson's when I heard you on Desert Island Discs um, quite a long time ago now. And I remember I started following your son, James, on social media. And over time, I just got to appreciate what that culture meant in practice for your staff. And I think to start with, I, I just viewed it with a sort of distant curiosity. But over time, I began to realise that, you know, on the surface of things, the business of key cutting and shoe repairs feels far removed from the business of general practice. But I think if you stop and think about it, there are some similarities. You know, we both go into work each day trying to provide good service. We run as small, relatively autonomous businesses in the community with some central oversight and for both of us at its core our business is a people business and it's this last point in particular around people and staff that I've spent a long time exploring in terms of what you've achieved at Timpsons. So let's start at the start if we might actually Sir John and I know that you had your first leadership role when you were just 27. Can we go back to that time? And could you tell me, from what I understand, it was a bit of an unexpected start? Uh, yeah. I mean, I was made a director of uh, what was then our family, mainly shoe shop business. Probably far too young. Age 27, I was in the boardroom and I just arrived in time to witness and perhaps be part of a, a family row. 
It was a board bust up, which finished up with my father being fired as chairman. He was voted off the board by seven votes to two. And suddenly what I thought was a, an assured career with the family business completely changed. So uh, it was a, a, a dramatic start early on. That actually probably made me more determined to uh, make more of the, my life than uh, seemed possible. It was certainly made me very determined to uh, get back into the family business, which eventually I did some 20-something years later. So how did you learn the job of being a leader, do you think? By doing it, I think. I've always been a bit of a maverick, actually, do it our own way. So I, I learned it by experience and from the other people around me. And I, I think that's actually helped an awful lot because being, as I say, a bit of a maverick, I haven't taken much notice of what everyone regards as being best practice. So that's why we run our business in a very different way to just about every other organisation in the UK. In simple terms, I don't think head office is there to run the business at all. Head office is there to create the strategy, but then it's the people out on the front line who put that strategy into practice, and the rest of the head office we don't call it that, but the rest of the people at head office are there to support the people on the front line and make life as easy and as efficient as possible for the people who are looking after, in our terms, the customers, in your terms, the patients. So let's go right in there, actually. Let's talk about this philosophy you have called upside-down management, I believe. And you say the best way to run a business is to trust your colleagues with the freedom to do their job in the way they know best. Tell me about that, and where did it come from? It was a simple thought 25 years ago, something like that, when we're thinking, we're always thinking, how can we do better? And what, what are the most important things in, in our business? And it seems pretty obvious. We don't, we don't actually use market research. I don't think we need to. Uh, because to be successful, we just simply have to make sure the jobs that we do are really good and that we're nice to customers. We really do give friendly, excellent service. That's what we need to be successful. And then when you think about it, those two things depend on the people who are serving customers. Our success totally depends on them. And if you want to really give excellent service, which is not, you can't, do, you can't get there by having a set of rules because customers aren't alike. The excellent service looks after the difficult customers and is able to adjust according to what's happening. So the only way you can really look after customers is to let the people who serve the customers do it the way they want. So that's where it came from. It's not totally original because I have read a book about three years before we started to do this about a department store chain in the States called Nordstrom, who had a wonderful reputation for great service. And in that book was a management chart that was upside down, which explains that it's the people who serve the customers who actually are, doing the, are, are trusted with do it, making the money, and everyone else in the organization is there to help them do it as, in the best possible way. So the organisation is there to make it as easy as possible and with no, nothing getting in the way of the people who are serving the customers. So that, that's the principle. And that's music to my ears, Sir John. So what did that actually look like in practice? Nothing like I've described to start with because uh, I, once I got this idea, I was really enthusiastic and raced around telling everyone about it. I visited lots of shops and said, you're free to do whatever you want. 
and as soon as my, my back was turned, as soon as I went off down to the next shop, the area manager would be on and say, don't take any notice of John. You, you work for me. You do it my way. So there were what, quite a lot of obstacles I had to overcome to get it to work. I mean, it was a, 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 a complete change in the way that we ran the business. We literally were turning things upside down. And so it obviously wasn't going to happen overnight. Big problem was to get, in the first place, the, the day-to-day management to work a different way. I mean, I, I told field managers, the area managers, you can't tell people what to do. You've got to let them get on with it. And they immediately said, well, hang on a minute. How can I be responsible for running my area if you're telling me I can't tell anyone what to do? It's just nonsense. So we had to spend, it took about five years, to a different way of being a boss. Because if, you, if I say to you, you've got to run your, your team without telling anyone what to do, you will in the end come to the conclusion that what you do is you run the team by help make, helping each team member become the best they can possibly be. So you concentrate on getting the results by helping the team members do it in their own way, but with your support. So you're looking after your people, not telling them what to do. So that was a complete change. And that, that goes way beyond the workplace, incidentally. I mean, helping them with personal problems is a very important part of being a good boss because it's personal problems that often get in the way. So you've got to understand the relationship between home life and work life and so on. So it's a completely different concept of being a boss. How to get that through. And the next thing was we've already talked about is the this problem of head office. An organization assumes that head office is king and that anything that comes out of head office is to be obeyed. And people in head office think that they know more than the rest of the organization. So they think they're experts at what's going on in the field, when they're not, actually. The experts are the people out there who are doing the job day in, day out. But that doesn't stop people in head office in not most organizations coming up with policies which tell the people in the front line how to do their job, which is a whole lot of uh, processes. So they're making sure that people in the front line are following a process which they might not want to do. So that makes life difficult instead of making it easy for people on the front line. So that's trying to change the head office thing from, from actually being a policy and process-driven place to one which is there to support. Very simply, your job in the head office is to make life easy. So you take obstacles that are getting in the way. Like, like what, though? An example of that. Part of our upside-down thinking is, whereas we used to have computers and so on that gave us loads of information back at the office, we, we had loads of stuff, lots of data. We're not the people who need the data. We actually now supply data in the easiest possible form to the people in the front line to make their life easy. We don't expect them to spend their time feeding information back to us and doing box ticking and all that sort of thing. That's not to say that the central office doesn't have a job to do in terms of the overall strategy. That, that is for them to do. You've set the overall strategy. But that's it. Implementation is for the front line. And then... The final learning, the third thing, is it only works with the right people. And my observation is that in most organizations, 
you've got a lot of people who get in the way. I mean, being blunt, uh, we've been up, I learned this from Disney. I went to uh, James, my son, and I, we spent a half, half day with the team at Disney in, Flo in Florida. And we learned from them that we should aim to have just nines and tens, people who, who rate nine or ten out of ten. And they said, I bet you put up with five, sixes, and sevens. You realize that those people are getting in the way of the good people. They are taking up all the time of your, I mean, your HR department spend 80, 90, 80 to 90% of their time with the people who are least good, and they don't have the time to spend looking after the people who are great. And also, the, the people who are less good irritate the people who are great. So you actually positively have to say goodbye to some of the people who are, but those people who aren't up to the mark. And also, you've got to make sure you hire people who've got not, not necessarily the right qualifications, but particularly the right personality. I mean, to me, a nine or a ten is about personality rather than qualifications. Okay, we've got a technical job. They've got, they've got to have, they've, they've got to know what they're doing. They've got a part, our people have got to pass their apprenticeship. They've got to be able to repair shoes and cut keys. But we also expect them to have the personality that helps them get on with their colleagues and also particularly get on with their customers. It's very similar for us as it is for you, I think, that we're not just serving keys and shoe repairs and watches. We're serving people. And it's, it's the whole person that we're helping. And I think it's very much the same in medicine. Oh, thank you so much, John. There is loads there that I want to unpack. And also, you know, with your permission, maybe challenge some of that, because I'm sure there are people listening who will be thinking, that's very interesting for Timpsons, but how can that apply to the NHS? So I'd love to get your thoughts on that. <clears throat> Starting really with, you talked there about autonomy and trust in your frontline workers, but does that mean that you got rid of process and policy completely? We, we did, but you've still always, you've got to have red lines. We, yeah. I mean, we have two rules in our business. One is you've got to look the part. That means you have to wear a uniform. You have the have put the apron on. You've got the badge. You've got the tie. And you turn up on time. You keep the shop absolutely looking smart. And the second rule is you put the money in the till, which actually all that covers a lot of other things like things to do with health and safety. There are, there are various obligations that everyone has to follow as they're part of the legal part of running a business. But what we don't do is to spell out to make sure you actually do men follow all those guidelines. You have to do it this way and that way and that way, and you've got to report that you've done it. We don't do that. We trust people. I mean, it's always seemed to us that uh, we're employing people who run homes, they bring up families, they drive cars, they can organize holidays. They can do all sorts of amazing things. They can even use a computer a lot better than I can. Surely we can trust, trust them to do the job that they've been doing for years and years and years. But there is a limit to how much freedom they've got because there are legal obligations in everything we do in life. So basically, we're saying you've got to stay legal and actually look smart. And that's it. Mm. Otherwise, you can do whatever you want. And with that degree of trust and autonomy comes variation, I presume. So what people do and how they do it is quite different. 
what would you say to people who are saying we need to be standardized in order to be efficient so that degree of variation is not that efficient it, it costs it, standardization means that you expect to serve every customer the same way but every customer is not the same I'm going to give you an example of the sort of thing that, that we are able to do that most other shops can't do. Customer comes in. We've got Photoshops, uh, Max Spielman. And not very long ago, customer came into one of our shops and she wanted four photos framed, um, large and framed. And in chatting to this woman while it was all going on, uh, the person we were serving realised that what was happening here as she was getting some pictures framed so they could be there at the funeral of her husband. So she didn't charge for them. Now, that's such the right thing to do. And you can imagine that what good that, that does the business as well. It, it, it's, it's a nice thing to do for her. But also, she's not going to forget that. She'll tell a few other people. So if we standardised, she, she would have charged, been charged whatever, oh, £75 or something. But there, there are lots of examples of that where... By giving people the freedom to use their judgment, use their personality, uh, by instinct doing the right thing, uh, we, do the, we, do the, we do the right thing for the customer and the right thing for the business. In fact, we encourage every one of our shops to do at least one random act of kindness every day. And I guess good for the staff as well, because that must have been a deeply satisfying experience for your staff member, knowing that she had the autonomy to do that. And one thing that it does, it's really good for the, for the colleagues' well-being. Because they're being trusted and they're allowed to do it their way and they feel it's their shop as much their shop rather than my shop or the company's shop, uh, that's very good for them. Constantly tell me, I really enjoy doing my job, which is quite unusual, I think, probably in most businesses. Uh, so anyone who feels that they are valued, they are trusted, and they're given the authority to do things the way they want. You're not having to turn around to a customer or to a patient and say, I'm sorry, I can't do that because the regulations won't let me. I mean, that's soul-destroying when you know that you're doing the wrong thing because you have to. Does that explain why it's yeah, why, ab- why it helps so much? Absolutely. And I love the way that you talk about people as colleagues and not staff. There's such a deep sense of respect in just the terminology there. And you talked about this so well, which I, I, really, I really think the NHS can learn from, and that's that people come to work as their whole selves with other things at home that influence their ability to do their job. And it's not something I've personally ever felt that the NHS does recognise. And I, I love that, the way that you do this. And tell me about some practical things. So, you know, I know, for example, you have a director of happiness. You have financial help. Tell me about those things, John. Yeah, well, it's, uh, uh, Janet is indeed our Director of Happiness, and that's her job. Her job is to uh, uh, help people to enjoy their work. Quite a lot of her role gets involved in quite uh, tough things, like uh, when people have got cancer, and particularly we've had, we've had two people die of COVID over the last year. And so she gets involved with those sort of situations. Marion spends all her time helping people who've got financial problems. And literally, uh, 
sitting beside them, sitting across the, 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 the dining room table or the, the kitchen table to go through, go through all the bills, go, and just work out how they can find a way through the financial situation they're in. And then there's Elaine, who is a mental health counsellor. And I was in this week, Tuesday, I was in one of our units around Bristol. And our colleague who was working there, very, very good colleague, and he said, look, I'd just like to say thank you for all the help I've had because I've had difficult time. I don't know, I got really stressed, I got quite depressed, but I was put in touch both with, with, with uh, Janet and then I started talking to Elaine and it's made a massive difference. So it really does, it really does work. That is amazing. Uh, well, I've had my own problems with them. I mean, it, it's, I'm afraid mental health affects a lot more people than you realise. So you will, you'll realise I'm up all night because uh, I know talking to my GP that uh, for the last year, that's been pretty well top of the list of the things that you've been, you've been seeing. Uh, so uh, with her help, with her encouragement, I've written two books on mental health at work and teenage mental health, which little, little books which are free in our shops because it's, it's something we can do to help. And it, it's now come out in the open, but I don't think we don't, still don't know how to cope with it. I don't, I don't think we appreciate. Those who haven't experienced a mental health problem, sorry, that was my dog. <laughs> Holly, you're, you weren't invited to do this. So, I mean, this is, is Mental Health Month, is it? You're generally a mental health month. So you're, you're it feels like a mental health, health year, to be honest. Well, a mental yeah. health year, yeah. But we've got people really talking about it. And when I was writing the little book, I spoke to a, a lot of our colleagues who I knew had had problems and then discovered there were quite a few more. And I use a clip from a television, pretty dreadful television program that I made with Peter Jones, Dragon Stanguy, who came to the house. We were talking to my late wife, Alex, who was saying, well, you must have had some ups and downs and so on. And Alex said, have you heard about John's mental health problems? And uh, I said, no, I never mentioned it. Well, she, she says, well, I'm going to mention it. You talk about it. So I talked about it, on, and that went out on the television programme. So I play that clip wow. on our leadership courses. Well, I started doing that, I have a few people coming up to me, can I have a word with you? When you played that, and one was a very senior and sort of macho sort of guy, and, and he said, thank you for doing that, because I feel I can talk about it. And I really appreciate you sharing that even on here, Sir John. Thinking about staff, mental health and well-being, I have been perusing your website, not that I'm looking for a career change, but I'm just so impressed by some of the things that you offer. So as well as the people we've mentioned, the mental health counsellor, the director of happiness, you have benefits for the families, like free use of holiday homes and you give time off when somebody's child is starting school, when they lose a pet. You pay towards driving lessons and you give people a week off when they get married as well as a £100 bonus and use of the company car. I mean, the benefits are endless. What do you say to people, especially in the public sector, who might say that's fine, but it costs money? Yeah, the, well, the simple... The first thing we did was give everyone their birthday off. And I said, well, how much does that cost? My answer to that is I never even thought about it. Because do you know what? We don't have, pe don't have so many people throwing sickies. 
as most organizations, because if they if they've got a good reason to get do something, we say fine, you know, go to the dentist, do what. And the birthday off, we we get irritated if they don't take their birthday off. If your birthday is on a Sunday, then you pick the day you want to have instead. Because if you're not working on Sunday, you get another day. Uh, it doesn't cost money because what what is doing is incre- increasing the loyalty to us, and it actually. Is, a, is one of the little things we do that extends to the whole family because the, the family benefit from our colleague having the day off and they can spend the birthday together with them, which, which is nice. Why not? So does that cost money? I've never noticed it costing any money at all. We believe that if you run a really good business, it'll make money. But if you are completely about numbers, then you'll forget about people. Until the last 12 months, which have been horrendous, of course, because a lot of our shops have been shut, we've been enormously successful. I put it down simply to the fact we've got really good people and we let them get on with it. I love that because I think the whole point is you can't expect people to look after other people well unless you are looking after them properly in the first place. It just makes absolute sense. And... It felt like in the pandemic, people in the NHS, you know, we got so, we were so happy that we had free tea and coffee and meals being served at hours that we were working and, you know, maybe, you know, even free parking. And it it was almost a sign of how deprived we had been before of people even thinking about well-being. And now some of those changes are being reversed. It worries me that we're just going to go back to the status quo and lose all the learning that we've had in the pandemic. But you talked about having the right people on board. So I'm interested in your recruitment strategy and you've talked about personality. But how does one assess personality in a way that is consistent and objective? Well, when we started doing this upside down management thing, we realised we were recruiting totally the wrong people. We were recruiting shoe repairers and key cutters and lastly, people who could repair watches. And we were wrong because we needed people with personality. Because if, you, if you've got people with personality, we can teach them all those skills. But if you get a, a fantastic shoe repairer who is grumpy, a real grumpy cobbler, they'll always be grumpy. You'll never get rid of that grumpiness. And, and that's why we, got, we, ha- we had some really good craftsmen who took very little money because they, they, they didn't get on well with the customers. So we had a, a major job to do to explain to everybody who, was doing the, who were doing the recruitment, how do you change that? How, how do you, and very fortunately, I was on the train down to London with my son, Edward, who has nothing to do with the business. These days, he's a politician, but this is, this is, long, this is 25 years ago, so he, he was just out of school, really. And we were chatting about this problem. And by the time we got from crew to Euston, we'd come up with the idea, which is just a lot of cartoon characters. Call them Mr. Man, but there's Miss This and Mrs. Death. There's Mr. Happy and Miss Careful and Miss Punctual and a whole lot of positive characters like that. And then there's the other lot. There's, there is Mr. Grumpy and Miss Dull. So you've got all these characters on your, your interview form with a little empty box under each one and all you do when you do the interview 
get them to talk about themselves. Doesn't don't ask the normal questions about what jobs you've done, what skills you got, all that sort of thing. Just say, you know, what what rocks your boat? What have you done for the last weekend? Who are the friends? Get them to talk about something they're really interested, and then tick the boxes that most fit that personality you're talking to. So if you find you've ticked a lot of the positive ones, get them to come and work in one of our shops for half a day alongside someone who knows the, the sort of people we need. And that's it. That's, that is our, our recruitment process. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I've never heard of anyone in the business sector thinking about recruiting like that. I know that the applicability to healthcare is limited, but... You have got me thinking, you know, we ask for top grades in science A-levels when we're recruiting doctors, but actually, you know, do we really think about assessing the wider aspects of their personality that maybe can't be taught? At the moment, on the breakfast TV, they have doctors on almost every day. We've got doctors coming at us from all directions. And how do we judge what we think of them? By their personality. Absolutely. If they come across by really warm, engaging, happy, certainly knowledgeable, but it's that, it's what we think of them that gives us the confidence in what they're talking about. And probably I'd put Mr. or Mrs. Kind right at the top of that list for medicine, at least. Well, well, we think kind is about the most important word that you can use in management. You've got to be able to be... If you can be kind and make money at the same time, then you're doing the right thing. Yeah, that's a truism if there ever was one, Sir John. But what about people that don't live up to the Timpson standards? How do you performance manage them? Or maybe that's the wrong word to use for the Timpson's culture. I mean, am I right in saying you got rid of appraisals? Yeah, we've never had appraisals from... I did appraisals in the 1970s because I, I got a an HR manager then who introduced me to appraisals and he uh, he got all his his appraisal form and all the rest of it. And, and the first person who I appraised was him. Uh, and after about two or three years, I realised we were spending ages on this thing and doing more harm than good. Because to be nice, to be kind, I was telling people who were pretty useless. I was trying to find one or two things I could praise them on and they... I, and so they, they would even actually the one use that against, against us as a, a tribunal. So we didn't go over the top with the people who were doing, doing really well. I'd find one or two things that I thought they could do better. I demotivated my best people. And I elevated the people who I really should have been saying goodbye to. So I didn't think doing much good. It's taken a lot of time and we've never missed them. We have one thing which is magic. We call our happy index which is really simple because it's, it's one question, one piece of paper, not on a computer. I like pieces of paper. And the question is this, on a scale of one to 10, how do you rate the support of your team? Because that's explain what a boss is about. The boss is about looking after the people, helping them to do, giving them all the support they need. So that measures exactly how good the boss is. And we do the same thing of the people out in the field rating the support departments at the centre. So on a scale of 10, 1 to 10, how do you rate the support you get from the finance department or from the HR? We don't have an HR department. We call it colleague support. Uh, but And from the warehouse. And So everyone gets that one once a year happy index rating. And it is absolutely 
perfect in terms of measuring what's good and what's bad about the organisation. I like that, the happy index. I wonder if we could have an NHS happy index. The trouble is, as soon as you do it, you're, uh, I've seen this, and I'm a non-exec of a, of a bank, and I see that they can't resist putting about 25 to 40 questions in the thing. You only need one. Are you happy or not? I mean, just, just rate us. We don't really need, need to know on this scale and this scale and this scale. And, uh, and there is far too much information, data, being produced for people at a head office who actually don't know as much. They only need the data because they don't know what's going on. Whereas you know perfectly well what's going on out, out, out of the field. Don't, leave, don't worry about you having the data. Just let us have all the data and we'll get on with it. Hmm. And you're quite tough about managing people out, aren't you? Well, that was something else we learned from Disney. Um, it, the phrase that we have is helping people to find their happiness elsewhere. Uh, well, I, I actually do believe that all these warning letters, and particularly performance management programs, which HR departments love putting in, are not much fun. I think basically they're a bit of a lie. What you're trying to do is create a, a clean file for a possible tribunal that might be down the line. Whereas in most cases, someone who isn't doing a great job actually also isn't very happy doing that job they they picked the wrong wrong they've picked the wrong role we picked the wrong person and we ought to have a conversation about it and say this is a situation where let's work together as nicely as generously but as quickly as we can to find you a role elsewhere where you can be happy and that's what that's what we try to do i mean some people resist that and say no 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 you you don't know. You don't know the law. You've got to do. But in most cases, we can get there. We've had a lot of people say, "Thank you very much. You completely changed my life. I do feel happier now." You owe that to the really good colleagues. And you mentioned your two rules, John, of you know looking the part and putting the money in the till. But what we haven't yet mentioned is you trust people to put money in the till that most other people wouldn't trust at all to work for them. And I'm talking about the ex-convicts that you recruit. So I think something like 12% of your workforce have a criminal conviction, even a director. You have workshops inside of prisons, which are used to directly recruit your staff. I mean, there's so much I want to ask you about this because I find it fascinating. But tell me the story. Like all good things, it started by ch- completely by chance. It was my son James was visiting visiting a prison which is called Thorn Cross, just down the road from where I live in Warrington. And um, he was there for a social function which was being held inside the prison. Well, the evening was a trip round a, a trip round the whole of the prison, guided by one of the inmates. And the guy that James got impressed him so much. He said, "Look, when you get out, get in touch with me. I'll find you a job." And uh, Matt's is still with us, and I think it's 19 years later. James's mother said, well, if you, can, if you employ one, you can employ more. Why don't you find 10? We got 10, and he said, oh, I'm going to get 100. And that, that's, that's how it happened. Um, I mean, it's a big mistake to think that everyone who's in prison has been involved in uh, robbing houses. I mean, I, I, I don't ask what, what offence they've done. It doesn't matter to me. As long as their personality is a 9 or a 10, that, that's fine by me. James always says the drug dealers to the best because they're really good businessmen. And it's been amazingly successful. 
whereas over 60% of people who leave prison reoffend within two years. With us, the percentage is 2%, something like that. Because we trust them, and it took a bit of time for me to accept that it was not taking a risk, that the customers would be happy with it, and our colleagues would be happy to work alongside. But now it's it's very much a plus. It's, it's part of our culture. And I think it's fair to say that people who join us from prison are at least as loyal and at least as successful as people who join us in any other way. Those stats are amazing, Sir John, and you took such a risk there, but it seems to have paid off. Um, there are obvious reasons why that can't apply to the NHS, but you've really got me thinking, and we are the biggest employer. I mean, what do you think? Well, I, I, I can think of no reason why it can't apply to any organisation. I know airports say, well, we, we can't employ people who've been in prison because they can't go airside. But this, this, is, this is nonsense. Why? That's pure box ticking. If someone has, sadly, caused someone a very serious injury or even death by dangerous driving, and they serve three or four years in jail for that, when they come out, that doesn't mean they can't do another job, does it? I mean, I mean, you might say, well, maybe I don't want to give them a driving job, but they're probably maybe the safest drivers in the world after that. It just doesn't make sense. But has it ever gone wrong? Yes, occasionally. The odd occasion it goes wrong, it can, can go wrong in quite a big way, but we haven't had very many. I mean, we, we have one very, very able uh, person who got promoted, became an area manager. But then we discovered that she had used the company credit card to go on holiday. But she was just a one-off. I mean, uh, I remember it because it went so badly wrong. It didn't stop you, though? No, because it's such an isolated incident. We, we have someone pinching our money every, every week of the year. One poor guy who had got money problems, and he, his branch was next door to a, a betting shop. So he, he found the perfect way to solve his problem, which was to take a £1,000 out the till and nip next door and put it on a racing certainty. And then, of course, it didn't work, so he did the same thing in the, the next day. And that didn't work. And then, thank goodness, he came to us and said, I'm sorry, do what I've done. We didn't actually fire him because, we, I mean, he just he got really? his life in such... Well, his life was in such a mess that really he, he just... You should have just come to see us two days earlier. It would have been fine. So, but normally, if someone has, uh, has abused our trust, then they go. I mean, we, we have to do that. It was a rare case where we didn't because there were other circumstances. But yeah, it, it happens. It happens all the time. But it's not the people who join us from prison who do it. It's normally uh, people who you would never expect. Mm, I love your unwavering faith in people, John. And that faith, as far as I understand, extended towards things at home as well, because you fostered over 90 children with your late wife, Alex. Yeah. So I'd love to ask you a bit more about that, if you don't mind. I mean, it sounds like, from what you've described and what I've heard before, that she was an amazing woman and had an incredible influence on you and the decisions that you've made around staff, but also this other side of things going on at home with the fostering. So I'd love to hear a bit more about that, please, and what, what it taught you about attachment and looking after people. Okay. Uh, I mean, we never discovered about attachment until we'd been fostering for uh, 14 years, and we'd been looking after our eldest 
elder uh, adopted son for, he was 14, he came to us when he was six, that was eight years. He was an absolute nightmare. I mean, he, he, he ran away. He, he didn't run away, actually, he drove away. He, at the age of 14, he took a car and disappeared for four days. I haven't got a clue where he was um, or where the car was. Really. So, I mean, that, that was the end of a whole series of things going on. And Alex was at her tether with that because it was, it was the day that one of her friends came along and said, um, why don't you let Ollie to come, to come to me for a week? I'll soon sort him out. And that was, I mean, that was such a horrible thing to say, really. She meant well, but did a lot of harm as far as Alex was concerned. Then luckily, uh, within a couple of weeks of that, Alex did something which was not in her nature, but she went to a training course run by the local social, social services. And the person who was giving that, the talk that day was a guy called Dan Hughes, who has written books about attachment. And that was the first time she heard about attachment. And he just said, I suppose, I suppose what you're doing is you're stopping the, the watching the television. You've got a naughty step and they go to bed early. He says, you got it wrong. What you need to do is think of why they behave the way they do. And he explained how children who don't get the same love and attention early in their lives, or even a bit later on, but certainly early on, grow up not trusting other people, so why should they? Not actually having confidence in themselves, because that's not in them. They haven't got the safe base which gives them the confidence to lead their lives. And forever, and we, we, we found this, when all the children came to us, most of them, all of them, most of them, they're always testing to see whether you're up to it, whether you are actually that safe base we want. And they give you a bloody hard time along the way to try and make sure. And it starts, you start to understand that what they need is not the, the traditional discipline, but they need the attachment, the love and attention. And you've got to be very, very patient. You've got to, to understand, in those words, understand why they behave the way they do. And that's taught me an awful lot. You know, people who've got attachment problems, people particularly looked after children, they statistically do poorer in exams. They are less, more likely not to get a job and they're more likely to go to prison. So that's why I've spent quite a bit of time trying to help get, get schools to pay a lot more attention to understanding attachment, to understanding why those children behave the way they do. It goes on in the, that attachment thing is important to all of us. That's one of the reasons why this last 12 months has been such hell for a lot of people, because they miss going out. They miss meeting people. The whole of the social contact is part of that attachment you need. And so work in itself is another part of the attachment that helps you form your personality and helps your well-being. And if you are happy in your job, and you are trusted, you're going to actually do a better job and you're going to enjoy life that little bit more. That is spot on. That is actually the essence of everything that you've described in this podcast so far and it, it feels like it needs to go on the, on the wall of every workplace. Just to finish really, I, I want to ask you, you know, people are sitting there thinking, can this really apply to the NHS? I'm sure you've been asked this before from other industries, but what do you think for us? Yeah, I was talking to a group of uh, NHS people 
some uh, a couple of years ago, I think it was at Preston North End's football ground, not on the pitch, but uh, in front. And uh, talking about the same sort of stuff. And I was going down the lift in the lift afterwards with someone, and uh, they said, "Well, that was really interesting, but of course we couldn't do it in the NHS, you know, because we're spending public money." I thought. What a strange thing to say. Because we're spending public money, we've got to measure it and account for it. And that's all getting in the way of having a more a kinder, more efficient organisation. Why should the fact that it's a, a government-funded organisation make any difference as to how well you, the way you run the organisation? And that's right at the heart of, I think, why organisations like the NHS think they can't do it to satisfy the fact that we're spending public money? There we go. Yes, I, I heard someone once say that you know healthcare is a is a contact sport. It's all about yeah, human that's a, that's beings. A nice trick. Yeah, and yeah. you know what? If anything, I think we're the one place that really should be looking at what you're doing because. That's exactly what you've embodied, that what you do is about contact with people and you've recognised that to look after your customers, you have to look after your staff. Yeah. That cannot be more true in healthcare. How can Absolutely. it not How can it not be? So there is so much to learn there, public or private. I think there are some lessons to take away. So really conscious of your time, Sir John, the final three questions that we ask everyone on the podcast, if that's okay. Yeah, sure. So the first is a a book or a resource that you'd recommend that has really influenced your own thinking about leadership? Well, the book that influenced me most was that one I mentioned earlier about the department stores in the, in the, in the States called Nordstrom, the Nordstrom Way, which was literally very, I mean, this, 40 years ago, they'd learned that the way to be successful was to trust the people on the front line to do the job the way they want, and they turn their organisation upside down. So that's, that made a big difference. It gave me the confidence to do it. So that would be the book I would choose, I think. And the second is a leader that you admire or have admired in the past, and why? Uh, do you know what? I sounds a bit strange, but I go back to my grandfather, who I knew. One of the last times I saw him was when I was working just as a, as a trainee shop assistant, and he came into the shop. And... He, he was a people person. I mean, he put kindness first. And this is in the 1920s and 30s and 40s. He loved nothing more than spending a day going around shops chatting to people. Not, not about the job, but talking about their children and his family and their holidays or whatever. And I think that I'd ask, where does a lot of what we do come from? I think quite a lot came from him. I can imagine you doing that, going around your shops and chatting to everyone that you come across. I can see no, that's I, very I, much your style. I, I was doing it on Tuesday. <laughs> yeah, I thought so. I could chat to you all evening, Sir John, but you'd be pleased to know this is your final question. What are your top pieces of advice for new leaders listening to this? Surround yourself with really good people. And uh, if you've got the wrong person, do something about it quickly. Don't think it'll get right. You've got to do something about it. But if you've got the right people, trust them and let them get on with it. Sir John Timpson, thank you so much. That is really my takeaway message from this entire conversation. It has been ever since I first heard you speak. It's all about trusting your people to get on with the job. 
and you'll be amazed at what they can achieve. And I think certainly as a junior doctor, thinking back over my experiences to date, the NHS has a lot to learn from you in terms of looking after its staff. Thank you, Sir John. My pleasure. Thank you. So that was episode 18 with Sir John Timpson, someone that I've really wanted to interview for a long time. As ever, if you'd like to keep in touch with NextGen, just sign up to our monthly bulletin at bit.ly forward slash bulletin. We're currently accepting applications for a new programme in Bedfordshire, Luton and Milton Keynes, which is closing imminently. For now, we'll see you next time for the next episode of the NextGen Cast. 